History Notes. Welcome to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. History Notes reports on the people, places, monuments, and events that have shaped our society. Sometimes we examine what has occurred long ago, and at times we look at history happening now. Grab a pad, a pen, or a digital device and get engaged with History Notes. Welcome to another edition of History Notes. I'm your host, Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum. And today uh, we're truly having an educational uh, conversation because uh, we have a professional in here. Mm-hmm. And it's about time, people would say. You know. <laughs> but uh, today we're joined by Jasmine Cattrall Morris. She's the Executive Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Guilford County Schools. So welcome. And uh, let's start uh, by telling us a little bit briefly about yourself. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, first of all. Thanks for having me. Um, I am uh, professionally uh, nurtured in the field of public health, specifically uh, doing work in maternal and child health education with a specific focus on racial health equity. Um, In that public health space, my background, academic and experiential, is um, as a community health educator, where I've used my skills as core competencies in community health education to perform needs assessments, um, also apply the results of needs assessments, which is essentially doing qualitative and quantitative data research um, and applying what we know from the community's voice to relevant community-centered interventions. Um, and those interventions, some may think about public health and think about that current moment, i.e. COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But but responding to crises such as that is not particularly my area. That's more of a um, behavioral health cross with epidemiological perspective, which is disease studies and interventions with respect to communicable disease. My background is really doing some significant power mapping with respect to understanding how systems impact a community's health over its life course. Now, we're a history museum, so mm-hmm. can you not unpack all of that, but can you help <laughs> can you help our listeners understand um how history plays a part in what you just said? Absolutely. So, um for one thing, with a background in maternal and child health, and a specific passion area that resonates with who I am um, and my sociopolitical positionality as a woman of African descent is the reproductive justice movement, which essentially is um, for folks who might be connected to public health and even those who are in education understand that we operate from a particular understanding or analysis around systemic inequities um, called social determinants of health mm-hmm. and education in other spaces that are in alignment with education is called sociopolitical context, understanding how every system um, in our society that actually upholds and, and, and drives our society um, has inequities that have root causes stemming from the founding of this country, right? So those systems include education, include uh, health and health care, neighborhood and built environment, economic sustainability. If I don't have the access to work, to buy food, to live in a home, to sustain my family's living and, and, and well-being for thriving, I'm probably not going to be able to sustain 
a lifestyle by myself um, where I can have children who will then thrive in their educational experience, okay. which we know also plays a role in how one is able to even obtain um, a gainful employment, right? And I'm pulling things out of out of uh, my proverbial pocket as examples, but we know that the issues are deep, they are um, they are rich, and they are pervasive. So considering all of what I've just said and through the lens of history, we know that there have been significant policies in place um, that have resulted in the uh, disenfranchisement uh, of Black, Indigenous, and persons of color in this country that play out in each one of the systems I just identified, particularly education, because that is a space where all of the issues that our society has converges at one time. Okay. Hunger, homelessness, um, also um, issues around social community context and support. So our communities have done exceptionally well. We make phenomenal outstanding decisions in the wake of the inequities and oppression that we have because what we do well is we coalesce and we movement build together and we build our own communities. We develop them, we thrive, we shine, but we see throughout history things have happened such as Tulsa, the 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 raising, the literal burning down of the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because of white rage. We see instances such as yesterday's anniversary of Wilmington, Wilmington mm-hmm. on Fire is a documentary that talks about the 1898, the November 10th, 1898 um, massacre that took place in Wilmington, North Carolina, which was once a uh, thriving uh, uh actually thriving, diverse, and relatively equitable for the time in a sense that there were black persons who were empowered in leadership and also white persons who were working together in relationship and community. And those who were onlookers coming, uh, passersby, needing to really reclaim white supremacy in North Carolina legislation and North Carolina politics Mm -hmm. needed to get rid of these people in order to say, you say your lane. Your lane is not in power. So all of those things with respect to how our communities, when we have been oppressed, have worked hard to create something for ourselves, have been then taken. And then we usher in other things that have taken place for the good of the public, like uh, new era uh, deals or rather the new deal and things that have been passed with Franklin D. Roosevelt's um, administration um, that have been a benefit for accessing middle class, Mm -hmm. but have significantly limited how black, indigenous, and other persons of color have been able to access some of those things. We see outcomes of um, access to middle class home ownership, such as redlining, being Mm -hmm. a major part with respect to how our communities look today because of the limitations for black wealth and black accumulation of wealth through home ownership, which is in direct connection with how our schools are looking. Right. And the, you are mentioning stories that we know well, including the uh, Wilmington massacre, massacre, the only coup d'etat ever to occur in the United States. And uh, we actually had an exhibit there um, depicting what happened uh, when we had our, our American democracy exhibit. But we have a exhibit now that I want to talk about. But after that leaves, we're doing a North Carolina democracy, which will highlight and illuminate what happened in uh, Wilmington. So you touched on some great points. Um, but I do want to ask folks that aren't aware, you're with Guilford County Schools, and I believe you're originally from Ohio? 
No, I'm not. I'm sorry, DC. I'm from DC. DC. I'm from DC. I'm from Northwest DC. I was doing research on Dr. Linda Brown for a documentary I'm doing. That's why Ohio keeps popping up in my head. But you're from DC. I'm from DC. And you came down to North Carolina when? Was it this year or 2019? Oh, no, no, no. I've been in North Carolina since forever. So I came to North Carolina actually in 2001. Um, August will be my 20th year. Okay. Uh, I came here to attend North Carolina AT State University. That was a wise decision. That was a wise decision. Where's your (laughs) accent? Um, it has left. It left as it it, it comes out in the rarest moments. (laughs) All right. But you are new to Guilford County Schools. I'm absolutely new to GCS as of April 2020. Okay. So I'm brand new to GCS. All right. Now, what does the diversity, what's the mission? You're the executive director for diversity, equity, and inclusion Mm -hmm. office. What is your mission? So at this point, what I'd like to share is that I am coming in um, this office as a new leader to Guilford County Schools. And also with a new office, I have another uh, co-executive director, Mr. Rodney Wilds, who specifically focuses on student achievement. Mm-hmm. And Former I, principal of Dudley High School. Former principal of the great James B. Dudley High nice. School, indeed. <laughs> and I've also got another team member who is absolutely phenomenal, Mr. Stephen Bell, who is mm-hmm. our American Indian Education Coordinator. Right. We look forward to working with him, too. Absolutely. Right. He is absolutely awesome. So... I would say the beauty of the work that we're doing, coming from three distinct backgrounds, Mr. Wilds as a person who comes from K-12 education and also has has spent over a decade in school administration, uh, Mr. Bell with a background in social work and specifically with research in Native American history and heritage, and some of the issues and celebrations and other things uh, around being a Native person in, in the community. And myself, from a public health background, specifically from a community-based um, participatory research kind of background, I offer that and say that our mission is one that we are specifically developing now with a community voice. And I want to emphasize that now with community voice is critical because we are actually expanding our advisory council for them to share with us what Mm. they need us to do. How do we need to show up and show up for you? Because the youth, the students and their families, as well as the folks who are facilitating and engaging learning experiences for families, teachers and other support folks, are a part of our GCS community. We cannot, I cannot call myself any kind of person that does anything around equity if I'm just throwing out some ideas that right. came from my head. It's in, it's important and incumbent upon me to elevate the voices of the folks that we're serving. So you didn't come in taking an already existing template. You're looking to the community kind of to curate or develop uh, this mission for you. Absolutely. So there's some things I have uh, I have a three-year goal to have uh, as part of how this work aligns with our school district's strategic goals for 2022 to have uh, what I call actualizing racial equity and social justice in mm-hmm. schools. Um, this year uh, is year one of the three-year roadmap, um, meaning ending in school year 21. 
And the goal is cultivating a culture of equity, much like you're doing here and the awesome work you've been doing with um, your uh, uh, space and education for History Museum is ensuring that we have conversations, uh, monthly conscious conversations on every Equity Wednesday. So today is an Equity Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and in between those monthly live conversations, uh, which may consist of a book study, which may consist of... Um, a conversation with area experts and folks that are doing significant work. Um, I was definitely um, very blessed and grateful to have you kick off our school year 21 Equity yeah. Wednesday Conscious Conversation in September. But in between time, in between those once per month conscious conversations, there are opportunities for the various districts to uh, engage in conversations with a selected topic based off of generative themes from the live sessions that we do. Okay. And they also have discussion guides. This is uh, part of what we do in, in Twitter engagement, but ultimately it's something that we release to um, staff uh, during during the week, usually on a Monday. Um, so I have not done much around concretizing a mission that I'm going to take and run Anything I do and put out publicly, I really feel like it's important for the community to have say-so in it right. and add their recommendations to it based off of what they've experienced. You sound like my director. Um, uh, previously, before this summer, we've had exhibits that had a beginning and an end. We knew the story. We had our own museum lens, our own perspective on it. Uh, and you've seen, have you seen the finished product of our Pieces of Now exhibit? I not not the completely finished okay. one. No, I, I got to get you down there to see it. You were mm-hmm. there before we finished, mm-hmm. um, but it was important for us to say we can't put our lens, we can't put our spin on this. It has to come, it has to be curated by the the community, mm-hmm. and we know we're missing something. They're going to have to tell us what we're missing. They're going to have to speak their piece, mm-hmm. and so uh, identify with what you're saying. But that brings us to one of the reasons I wanted to bring you in. Um, because I've talked to you and seen your and heard your passion, and uh, um, this is part of a series. We've spoken to protest organizers, we've spoken to business owners, uh, we've done uh, podcasts with some church, large and small churches, mm-hmm. um, from all demographics about how they dealt with the uh, the demonstrations from this past summer in the midst of COVID, and um, the whole reason is to to lead out. You know the. Um, uh, I don't want to talk too much, but the uh, root word, the Latin word of education means is educator to lead out. And mm-hmm. so the whole purpose is to lead out and to the fullest benefit. So we want to get into the schools, into mm-hmm. the classrooms. And uh, my hope is that you're going to help us do that. Uh, but with the office that you hold, you might be the key to making this happen. <laughs> and so um, I want to ask you, when you talked about the 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 gaps and uh, the, the, the equity, are our schools... And you can only speak for your schools. Are you doing enough to bridge the equity gap? And uh, historically speaking, with the Black Lives Matter protests that have happened and also here in Greensboro uh, in in the May, early June or the past several months, have have they shifted the opinions of teachers, your principals and your uh, folks within the district on the term Mm anti-racist and what education looks like when you include that term, we want to be anti-racist. I'm going to tell you that we have significant um, support uh, and part of where I've been in the last few weeks with the DEI team is really um, co-constructing 
uh, critical analysis using our SWOC framework, strengths, mm-hmm. weaknesses, opportunities, and challenges. Some may have uh, heard of that analysis as a SWOT, which is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. But we we uh, affirm that we don't do threats. We're going to talk about challenges and we're going to mm-hmm. face them. So um, we talked about how there are significant pockets of support. Um, in Guilford County, there is the educators for racial justice um, available. Um, regionally, there is the uh, Piedmont Triad um, Coalition of Freedom Hill Coalition That's that comes out of the work that James Ford does, who is the executive director of um, the Center for Racial Equity and Education out of Charlotte. Um, he's an awesome, awesome equity champion. Um, and so are there people who are changing their minds about the term anti-racism? I am doing that field work to identify that as well. Mm-hmm. From what I've heard, seen in the outcries and the support I've gotten for the equity office, I'd say there's robust support since the September 22nd executive order to ban terms like mm-hmm. anti-racism systemic oppression, and critical race theory, I definitely feel like some folks are concerned about how they're able to actualize terms that are real terms based off of facts. The one thing I tell folks, if if, if we didn't get anything from the folks that uh, that settled in these lands <laughs> from Western Europe, the one thing we got is the written word on paper. You can find all these facts on paper, meaning the ways by which systemic oppression has been operationalized through policies and laws, um, the ways by which um, some of the tactics such as redlining, um, such as busing, such as the shutting down of black schools after desegregation for those uh, black students to then go to white schools and then significant educators who were... um, established in brilliant educators as a result of segregation and being in the public school system, teachers, principals, et cetera, having lost their jobs in order for black students to then be placed nationally and also here as well in white schools. This is all written. So we have these bans on terms, which scare people from using them. Um, That fear is real and alive and people Mm -hmm. are tired. So we've got the ban on terms, uh, we've got the ban on terms following the eruption of outcry around having seen a man get killed by um, my law enforcement, uh, Mr. George Floyd, as well as having seen the realities of a life taken for simply taking a run, Ahmed Aubrey and mm. Breonna Taylor sleeping in her own bed because there was knowledge that she was in relationship with someone in the past who in which Louisville, Kentucky police, where she was killed in Louisville by that their police department, um, hadn't had knowledge to really connect her immediately with, with the person they were looking for. All that happened immediately prior to COVID or in the midst of COVID. George Floyd happened in the midst of COVID. So the outcry, the protest, the uprising has been consistent with, with, with gainful support by people who are right here, who are right here in Greensboro, who are uh, folks who are very much interested in ensuring that they can support their students, mm-hmm. um, who are seeing reflections, students, reflections of themselves, 
whose lives aren't mattering according to what they're seeing on camera. So that support is there. How to support them without feeling like they are going to lose their livelihood Mm-hmm. is a question that definitely bodes well for discussion in this advisory council discussion we have. Well, uh, to briefly, if you can do it in 60 seconds, describe what anti-racist means to you. Anti-racist means to me someone who is understanding and actively living the values of racial equity and social justice, okay. understanding that it is not enough to say, you know, I love all people. What are your actions saying about it? Being an anti-racist, if we think about it in the space of education, is really about ensuring that we are offering loving critique of the society and the government that has established our current social situation. Um, And in that, that we are consciously um, elevating uh, new ways of being, that we are developing coalitions within our communities of people who are like-minded through uh, through consistent and ongoing uh, co-learning mm-hmm. relationships, through caucusing, meaning that we are identifying who we are with our own identity mapping. We're unpacking what we bring to the table and that we are having conscious, critical, and necessary conversation, not only excavating what we have been consumed with and nurtured by in this society that tells us we need to erase our unique selves and assimilate to white ideology, but it also calls on us to check those that we need to bring with us. So, for example, as a person of African descent, as a Black woman, it is incumbent on me to make sure that I'm educating my children. It's incumbent upon me that I'm holding space with people who, too, identify as anti-racist, who are about policy change for the betterment of a democracy for all in our society. That is in our neighborhoods. That's in our city. That's in local, state, and national government. So you're saying that being anti-racist is a Applicable to all races. You can be black and still have to have a practice to be anti-racist in America. Right. I spoke with a uh, uh, author, Osha Gray Davidson. Mm-hmm. It's been about a year. He came here to the library, brought him for a program. Excuse me. And um, uh, I moderated, uh, this was before COVID, so a face-to-face he had. But we did a podcast. Brody was here. And um, he's, he wrote the book, uh, Best of Enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that depicted the integration of Durham City Schools, um, um, and it was had Samuel Rockwell in the movie. It was turned into a movie, and Taraji P. Henson. I don't think it did very well um, in the box office, but it was still a great movie. And the book was fantastic. I read mm-hmm. the book, but he left me. He lives in Arizona now, but he left. And one of the things he said, he said, "It's not enough. There's no such thing as racist and not racist. Mm-hmm. You're either racist or anti-racist mm-hmm. because we're in a society." Uh, that we've talked about that will make you black, white, or whatever, uh, look unfavorably on someone because of uh, uh, historical uh, oppression, the narrative that's placed on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, we know we have teachers coming from everywhere. They're going to come in with some preconceived notions about about folks. And then uh, there was a study that Ed Weekly did mm-hmm. that talked about people that had uh, a belief in their, their structure and their school system before the protests and then how it changed after the protests. Uh, so I do want to ask you quickly, uh, you've answered a couple of the questions. Um, do you think GCS is, does the, the school system of GCS is on track 
or can you make that determination right now on track um, regarding the managerial thinking uh, in this area? I think that with respect to how our leadership is functioning, we're definitely on track. And I will have to say that to be in any racist is how some folks in different religious faiths, like Christianity, for example, I remember my former pastor, the good Reverend Dr. Diane Givens Moffat, who's now in Louisville, Kentucky, um, uh, leading the Presbyterian Foundation, um, said that you don't just show up to church every day and then you are the Christian. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Same thing with any soul-turning, life-altering, life-shifting experience of which losing your baseline info and the things you came with and becoming an anti-racist is lifelong. I say that to say, yes, I do believe that our leadership is definitely in right step. However, becoming an anti-racist is a lifelong experience and it is a continuum. No one can just be there and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. It requires constant study and it requires holding space for conversation and community around our issues. Not just having a dump space for all the horrible things, but a space of relevant, equitable celebration. And not just food, dress, and drink and then we go home and go back to the same old stuff we did yesteryear. I'm talking about consciously unpacking and implementing the tools we're learning from our constant study and developing. So, yes, we are in right step. Can we do better? Absolutely. This is a continuum, mm-hmm. period. Now, do you have the tools and the resources? Have you made the preparation to date to make that happen? At this point, the preparation is about engaging the community voices to identify what they want us to do, to see if it's in alignment with some of the thoughts I have. For me, in order to construct an anti-racist space of which necessarily locates race equity and social justice within Mm -hmm. our policy frameworks that we're operating within and within the schools that make up our system. So that's with respect to our school system and any place that claims to be uh, championing racial equity and social justice, which is anti-racists, right? Mm. I would say the first step is to have a vision. We have that to envision racial equity and social justice in all schools. Um, also to have uh, a culture, as I said before, this school year is about cultivating a culture of equity. So having uh, spaces where we can have brave conversations, not safe spaces. Safe is important. Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong. But I think sometimes we happen to use the word safe, and then when the conversation gets a little too heated or a little too uncomfortable because folks aren't ready to have or unpack certain things, it becomes unsafe. We need to reframe our language and discourse around how Mm -hmm. we practice change. We practice change by having brave conversations to challenge our 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 preconceived notions, but also to own our intent and our impact, right? right? So cultivating cultural equity means that we are creating spaces for brave discussion, that we are in constant study, that we are um, partnering and and consulting with our various and, um, and many uh, district departments in the process of systematizing equity. If it's coming from one person in one place within a whole district, that's not quite equity. 
Well, you say I'm writing down because I'm stealing some of your phrases. I, I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you credit for six months after that is mine. Okay. But uh, <laughs> let's do this. Let's put a break in here, and then when we come back, uh, we're sitting with Jasmine Getral Moore, uh, the re- executive director of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office for Guilford County Schools. And we're talking about uh, social justice, equity, and I want to come back and talk to you about this study we both looked at by Ed Weekly and the attitudes of teachers uh, and then kind of see if we can make it germane to our county here. All right. So you've been um, with uh, Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education, and uh, Ms. Getrell Moore from uh, GCS. We'll take a break and please join us uh, momentarily on History Notes. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To learn more about this podcast and many more, visit our website at www.greensborohistory.org. Now let's listen in to History Notes. Welcome back to History Notes. Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education. As mentioned before the break, Jasmine Getrall Moore. I always stumble on that that middle part you of your name good. okay i'm doing <laughs> from washington dc but yeah. been here 20 years yes and you, and you lost your accent you don't say month or nothing Mm-mm. like that <laughs> apartment you know <laughs> that was good that yeah. was good that was good that was good it's interesting because when you and i were first um connecting looking at the exhibit you mentioned earlier you noticed i was not from here so mm-hmm. while i may have lost my dc accent i apparently have not picked up a North Carolina accent. No, you haven't picked it up <laughs> okay. yet. Okay. <laughs> you haven't at all. And uh, we know we talked, went to break talking about some things, and uh, I want to bring this historical context into it all, uh, specifically speaking with the attitudes of teachers before the demonstrations of this summer after the killing of George Floyd, and then the attitudes of teachers uh, after the demonstrations as it relates to are we, do we have an anti racist abolitionist curriculum? in our schools, or do we have a program in place to ensure that we're doing that? And um, one of the things I read, it was a great study done by Ed Weekly, uh, and it said, according to the study, uh, 53%, so that's more, that's more, a little more than half, consider our anti-racist curriculum as this, as promoting diversity and equality. And when I read that, I said, that doesn't seem sufficient. seems like it's lacking something. So I want to ask you, you're the expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it more than that? And if so, why? I appreciate um, their offerings for what they believe in anti-racist education is. I would build on that to Mm. first problematize the notions of diversity and inclusion. Um, Diversity has been used to say we've got these people in these spaces, right? Uh, Inclusion to me is we've included these people in these spaces and maybe even in some of the Things that we have in the curriculum. We're doing Mm -hmm. a good job. Representation. I think where the uh, definition of an anti-racist education lacks, where I see um, one key term for my specific office is is equity, right? Explain the the difference between equity and equality. Equity is serving the needs of the folks um, based off of where there may be a gap, as opposed to giving everybody all of the same thing. Okay. Um, so you and I may both need to um, wear shoes in order to 
walk in downtown Greensboro. Um, maybe even to do a little uh, community jog in downtown Greensboro, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say we're on this jog in downtown Greensboro where where in this experience, I need shoes that are going to fit my feet and help for me to not have sores, blisters, et cetera, um, as well as you, right? That's that's a that's a that's an equal kind of need. Mm-hmm. But if we're both getting a pair of size twelve men's shoes, that really isn't going to help my feet stay safe and healthy during this jog. Okay. And I don't know what your shoe size is, but the point is. Mm-hmm. One or both of us are not getting served by whoever is doling out the same size, equal size, equal type of shoe, right? right. So that is an equality approach. We're giving everybody shoes who need shoes. Mm -hmm. But the shoe that you're giving isn't isn't helpful for what the need is on this jog. And it also actually doesn't even fit me. And they aren't even jogging shoes. These are dress shoes. So And from our earlier conversation those needs are based on historical precedents that have been absolutely set. absolutely it may be based on current issues like um the ability for families of which we have many families where english is not their first language that might require some assistance with respect to interpreting the information curricula that's available, interpreting the communication that's available. Um, we've got those in place here in Guilford County Schools. And, wor- a- and I hate to keep cutting uh-huh. you, and working with Stephen, what was Stephen Bell mm-hmm. uh, uh, over American uh, Indian Affairs? Mm-hmm. Is that- American Indian Education. And mm-hmm. then, uh, what would he say for? for- I think that um, one thing he would say, which I believe uh, comes back to the question about what that definition of in-racist education is lacking, definitely is in conversation with what I'd say, or I would say reflects this. And that is um, when our students are not seeing a reflection of themselves Mm -hmm. in the curriculum that's being taught, um, we aren't actually providing an equitable education when they are also being looked at or deemed with deficiencies as opposed to celebrating what makes them unique, special, beautiful, and interesting, and to center their voices and experiences in the curriculum and in the learning experience, that isn't quite an equitable experience. And I see an equitable teaching experience and learning experience that really centers culturally responsive teaching mm-hmm. that also provides expansiveness with respect to critical thinking. So really engaging in the critical pedagogy that necessarily aligns with the folks that are in the learning space. One of the great educators that I study quite a bit these days, Paulo Freire, talks about uh, the importance of um, reading and literacy and, and the relationship to the word and the world. When you read the word, you get a different relationship to the world and vice versa. So in in a critical pedagogy experience, you are very much locating the experiences of the folks who are learning as opposed to just dumping information in them as empty vessels who are uh, acting as if they are depositories and you are dropping off uh, dropping off funds in this banking system of education. So it should not be passive. It should be active and engaged. Okay. Now, the study also goes on, and these are national figures, and um, you, 
these are national figures, so things could be differently different here in the state of North Carolina in this in this school district mm-hmm. here in Guilford County. But eighty one percent of educators identify themselves as meeting those needs, mm-hmm. as having equitable teaching mm-hmm. uh, to all of their students. And I should point out, eighty percent of our students across the country, eighty percent of our uh, teaching workforce. Is white, mm-hmm. and eighty uh, percent of that number is white women. Mm-hmm. But yet, over fifty percent of the students that they teach, particularly in public schools, are not white. Mm-hmm. Um, but eighty-one percent of that totality, according to Ed Weekly, says we identify as anti-racist abolitionist educators. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that's accurate? I do believe that they have um, a significant conscientiousness about uh, wanting to provide a level playing field for their students. I believe that they care about their students. I do believe that we cannot undermine the science and the research and data, which is not only in Ed Weekly's article, but in several different um, research articles have come out in the last several years, and even in the last couple of months, I'm thinking about one called Teachers of People Too, which studies the implicit bias of teachers, uh, white teachers compared to white persons who are not teachers. Mm-hmm. And the study essentially found um, by uh, Professor Dr. Jordan and others that white teachers had less implicit bias than the average lay white person, but the difference was quite minimal, actually. And their their numbers for having less implicit bias was really based on the fact that they had been teaching in public school spaces, right? Mm. The other thing that the study found, which I believe is something that we can see regardless of what district, what state you're in. This is representative of our current situation in our education system and anywhere that doesn't have representative um, um, uh, professionals in the space to represent the folks that they're serving, is that the more and more these teachers in this study were participating in their professional life in schools or spaces where there were students that were perceived as being um, problematic, troublemakers, um, and maybe having a host of other deficient uh, traits and characteristics, then they tended to favor their white students over their Black, Indigenous, persons of color students. So... I believe that the data is consistent Mm -hmm. with what the outcomes are and our outcomes nationally, statewide and locally show that we have a lot of data that suggests that there's some implicit bias here, such as our out of school suspension rates. Okay. Okay. Where we are seeing a trend on all levels in our society, again, nationally, state and local, where there are uh, significant and disproportionate rates of black students who are suspended from schools compared to their white counterparts. Black boys are four times as likely to be suspended than their white boy counterparts. Black girls are eight times as likely to be suspended than their white girl counterparts. The Latinx um, population, the the community of students in the Latinx community, um, their numbers are not as high as 
our Black student numbers, but they have been increasing in the last four school years. Now, somebody may look at that data and say, something's wrong with these kids. They, they And then folks start coming up with all of these probable deficient issues. Oh, they are from poor backgrounds, they're mm-hmm. impoverished, they go through all of these things. And I'm not saying those things don't matter. But we need to start asking deeper questions. What is happening in the facilitated learning environment where those students are? Because we also see instances where our our persons of color, our students of color, may be doing the same things that their white counterparts are doing behaviorally, Mm -hmm. but the student of color gets the gaze. They're the ones that are... Uh, targeted with respect to the teacher literally gazing at them and then punishing them for their behaviors. Mm-hmm. I was so guilty. it's beyond. It's beyond. Uh, it's beyond a potential behavioral pattern. Mm-hmm. That is where the bias shows up. I was uh, doing that conversation I had with your your teachers. I, I was guilty of that myself, mm-hmm. um, not realizing it, but um, until a later date. But I did want to point out that Ed Weekly uh, did also discuss that after a uh, survey conducted in June of of this year, 87% of the teachers, principals, and district leaders agreed that black students face higher uh, rates of school discipline than their white uh, counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a, I do want to go back and look at what happened after the, before the protests and after the protests. And, and you're here and you're such a great resource to kind of make sense of all these statistics that we have. But before the uh, summer protest, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, um, and as it relates to schools having a, being effective at bridging the equity gaps, um, see if I can get that before that white educators were much more likely than their non-white counterparts to believe that schools had been successful in addressing this issue. But after that, by late August of this year, following the protests, uh, the share of white educators seeing schools as effective, uh, as, uh, uh teach, uh, put in implementing equity, declined by by six points. Hmm. But in contrast, the non-white educators' confidence in schools increased by six points. Now, what can you attribute that to, in, just in your thought process there? That is interesting. Um, I would say that I'd attribute that to maybe having some direct support from the uh, school leaders that may be reaching out to, to parents, mm-hmm. maybe having heard uh, and understood that there were going to be some necessary changes to curricula, schools across the country are deepening their relationship to racial equity and social justice as as a foundation to their existing curriculum in alignment with existing standards. Uh, School boards, state school boards across the country are also um, visiting what a, a racial equity policy looks like for their mm-hmm. states. So those who may be in the know and deeply connected to what's happening politically around education probably do feel that support. Mm-hmm. Um, connected, digitally connected, and media and digital literate, um, and having a constant connection with what's happening digitally will probably feel that. Some folks who are still um, really trying to make ends meet may not have the same response to that, right? So we also understand that there's privilege in who's responding to these surveys. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up. And it, 
I attribute it to similar, you know, to, to the same thing. You know, amid the um, national demonstrations, and we felt it right here. There were demonstrations right on Elm Street, uh, downtown Greensboro. But the demonstrations for racial justice, some schools, a lot of districts were in this game before that. Uh, and a lot of districts increased their efforts in this area uh, um, after that. But schools were rushing to diversify their curriculum with plans to start. Uh, more fully teaching about the histories, the literature, the knowledge and experiences of people of color in this country. Um, but the question is, it, it, this isn't the only question of curriculum development, but of teacher preparation and professional development. You know how we, we get it in that, that that area. But how do we need to rethink what makes a teacher qualified in their subject? And what does it mean to be an anti-racist or abolitionist educator and what does this look like in practice? I believe to answer your last question and then rewind, mm-hmm. to be an abolitionist educator, I believe is it is picking up and building on what I shared earlier with Paulo Freire's perspective on critical pedagogy, um, which his uh, book, which is a seminal text that people are basing whole entire educational and cultural foundations um, uh, uh PhD programs of study on, um, it's called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, that is a seminal work for understanding what critical pedagogy is. Critical pedagogy provides a basis of critical social theory, to, mm. but putting it in practice within of itself is new praxis for teachers to implement a racial equity and social justice curriculum. That is abolitionist teaching. Okay. Again, taking thoughts, perspectives, experiences from margin to center in curriculum and in the ways by which a teacher is engaging through culturally responsive teaching and text and also pulling away, uh, pulling pulling beyond what the standards require mm-hmm. and, again, identifying and studying who your classroom is, what, what who your classroom is made up of and, okay. and with whom. And from there... Ensuring that those experiences are central in the learning experience for those students. It doesn't mean let's, <laughs> it's Taco Tuesday, let's have some tacos. Mm-hmm. We're talking about getting beyond the fluff right. of food, drink, and dress mm-hmm. and getting into the experiences, the full experiences of what it means to be X group, mm-hmm. um, what it means to live, and function, put- and feel. And, and the contributions that X group, regardless of who you are, where you came from, have made to our literature canon, to science, to math, to social studies, looking at hidden figures and the 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 black women who were responsible for aiding um, uh, navigation through outer space. Uh, looking at Catherine Johnson, whose daughter is a member of my church, by the way, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Catherine Moore, and understanding that. There were people who've been contributing to science, to contemporary Western science and math for generations in this country, looking at um, the ways by which ancient cultures have been doing the work of STEM prior to it becoming something that we have put in written word, how mm-hmm. we use it and function with it now. So I'm talking about elevating the contributions of the people that represent the student body that we are working with. That is abolitionist education, understanding that their bodies are political. What does that mean? People oftentimes say when they don't want to get in heated conversations, I don't want to get political. My existence is political, Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay? Mm -hmm. Because race 
is brought and 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 actually bred from racism that is political mm-hmm. in order to sustain an economy right so saying i want to get political is actually antithetical to being human in this space honestly now and and i'm I have to get you out of here um <laughs> otherwise it's going to be a two part series <laughs> um but I do want to ask this. It, it's what you've laid out. I've read some of this. Uh, and as a classroom teacher, I'm I'm exhausted at the end of the day. This is yet another <laughs> thing. Former classroom teacher. Um, I'm exhausted at the end of the, end of the days. It's, it's another thing for me to add uh, to my already long list of things to do. Um, and can I get plain spoken examples of how I can implement this? Is this part of your thinking as things you can make available on your website or have you already? So I'm in um I'm in the works. So this is in the works. We do have some things mm-hmm. that we are working on and when you invite me back I may have some uh updates to give okay. you. Uh, so we have some things for teachers. There are digital re- uh, resources of which I have awesome um portals from Teaching Tolerance and other portable portals as such. Uh but we're also curating um lesson plans that would be helpful for teachers to use in class. And we're also developing um, an applicable uh, uh, series for professional learning and development. So that way, we're not just sending teachers out. The issue Mm -hmm. is that teacher preparation programs, which I believe are necessary uh, for having great teachers, we have them. But I think it's necessary for us to have teacher preparation or ed preparation programs that center a foundational thread of anti-racist education Okay, as part of how they prepare teachers and also ensure that as they prepare teachers that they're also sending teachers out in various communities as part of their their preparation work. Not like as a day I'm out here in this different community, mm-hmm. different zip code. I'm talking about having an immersion experience and understanding how to pick up and absorb and embrace the beauty and the joy in communities that are making phenomenal decisions with limited choices. Mm. Now we talked about a lot about teachers and I don't want you to spend a whole lot of time on this uh, unless you just feel you have such a great answer. But even before the national protest, after the, the, the events of George Floyd's death, principals listed um, these inequities uh, and, and building inclusive school communities as one of their top concerns. But the questions always remain how. Uh, in what you're doing, is it focusing on our building supervisors as well or, or just teachers? So the work that I'm doing is encompassing all people who interface with students. Okay. Mm-hmm. In partnership with our district um, leaders who then supervise the various departments that you see show up in the in the school building. Okay. And I do want to ask you this last question. Mm-hmm. Um and then I'm going to ask you another one that is it's even broader, and you may not be able to answer that one now. But uh, well, I, here's my question. I want to read it verbatim as I wrote it. The coronavirus pandemic continues to illuminate uh, the persistent Internet connectivity gaps and prohibitive rate structures that leave millions of American households without reliable or adequate Internet service. And our K-12 students, particularly those here. Uh, who can't access the internet are disproportionately low-income or black and brown students, which means they'll miss vital educational opportunities conducted uh, during this remote learning that we have. We just announced 
yesterday that uh, grades 7 won't resume until January 11th. We have some starting tomorrow, which, which now is, is, which would be November 12th, but that's only K through 2. So we're still in a remote learning posture here. Uh, and so they're going to miss out on uh, this remote learning because they don't have internet connectivity, as well as some economic opportunities, which you kind of spoke of earlier. What steps can you and those working with you take to provide affordable, reliable internet access? And who is already doing some of this work to connect the students? Is that part of your scope of work? So in relationship to my scope of work and um, where I sit in the district is a connection to one of our Groups, our community partnerships group that does the footwork around connecting community agencies and organizations to Guilford County Schools to amplify resources to to meet those needs and close those gaps. So does it fall under me? No. Do we have a group, an entity that is a significant, robust team that's doing that work? Absolutely. If it was not for that team, we would probably have um, wider gaps. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do have a group in our student services um, uh, division that mm-hmm. specifically focuses on community partnerships. And I know that uh, GCS dispatched buses to go to neighborhoods that did, to provide hotspots in some of these areas. So I didn't know if it was studies coming from DEI that help identify or target those areas. Um, so I know they're, they're out there doing the work, and you're definitely doing the work. Uh, you're very well qualified. You have the passion, and I expect you to do a lot of great things. Just remember me and come on our little show from time to time. Uh, but in, in a nutshell, what does success look like? I think success looks like a space where uh, our GCS community, which includes um, our staff, but I'm focusing in this conversation on our students and their families, can go to a learning experience and not have to emphasize go to a learning experience because it's virtual and maybe one day again we'll be back face-to-face mm-hmm. um, because it's all based on numbers, which can be complex. But in their learning experience, they feel seen, validated, they belong, they see themselves in the curriculum. Today I have my 10-year-old fourth grader with me and he significantly... uh notes that he does not see himself in the curriculum and he's not interested. And so does he have a choice (laughs) to participate? No. Um, But I understand why he's not. So it is my job to supplement some of what he's getting with um, materials that are relevant to his experience. And we do have parents that are tired, working several jobs, or exhausted. And because the reality of this season in coronavirus also means that there's significant mental health issues, mental, emotional health Mm -hmm. issues we are all dealing with as a result of this going into almost a full year of this experience. Um, Having to add another thing to your list, like you said, from the perspective of a tired teacher, as a tired parent, Mm -hmm. we don't need to give parents that extra thing. We need to be able to say in our public school system that is a reflection of our public, that our public can see themselves and what they're teaching, what they're learning, what they're experiencing, and that assumptions aren't made upon any one group of students because of the history that predates them makes an assumption that they embody violence, danger, and problems. Mm. Success looks like elimination of all of that. It looks Mm. like justice. 
Well, very well said, Thank as you. always. Time well spent, and I look forward to working with you later on and uh, putting together some webinars and, and tackling that problem together. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Ms. Jasmine Getrow moore Yes. Uh, Executive Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And let's bring uh, Mr. Rodney Wiles back, fellow Kappa man, and Mr. Stephen Bell here. And uh, uh, let's do this thing right. And uh, thank you for your time. And Absolutely. Taking time on History Notes. You've been listening to History Notes, a product of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. Just as you visited for this podcast, continue to go to www.greensborohistory.org and select the Discover and Learn tab to listen again or learn more about many other subjects. We also invite you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please stop by the museum when you can. We're located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. Hours vary, so visit our website or call 336-373-2043 for details. Once again, thank you, and keep tuning in to History Notes.